Welcome back to Beyond Sunday School. This season, we are putting Jesus in his place. Uh, we are taking a look at uh, the kind of the historical roots of, of Christ, looking at Jesus from the perspective of history and theology and trying to bring the two of those things together. If you want to go a little bit deeper into why we would want to try to bring history and theology and even literature uh, together, you could go check out last season uh, as we looked at putting the New Testament in its place. Uh, so we live record this podcast on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock in the Zoom room. If you would like to be in the room so you could ask questions and engage in conversations, uh, please let me know. You can reach me on any social media platform at Daniel M. Rose, and I will get you that link. Uh, and because of that, you will hear voices throughout uh, the recording this evening. And uh, they are my friends who are on here with me, and uh, they will be asking questions and interrupting whenever they want. So uh, so when you hear those voices, uh, it's, it's those in the Zoom room. And uh, hopefully you will, you will join us at some point as well. So uh, without further ado, let's get rolling here this evening. Uh, we are working our way through uh, N.T. Wright and Michael Bird's New Testament survey called The New Testament in Its World, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. And right now we are, uh, we're, we're beginning to look uh, at Jesus. We're looking at him uh, in, with this historical perspective in mind. And uh, so this week we are continuing a conversation that we began last week, which was looking at Jesus as prophet. Uh, throughout Christian history, uh, we have talked about Jesus taking on the role of prophet, priest, and king, those three offices. And uh, so uh, from the historical perspective, Jesus's role as prophet uh, was kind of his public-facing role. It was, it was the identity, you could say, uh, that, that Jesus really kind of put out to the public. So if you were wandering around the dusty streets of of Galilee uh, at the time that, that Jesus was living, you would probably talk about him as a prophet and a rabbi. Uh, but the, this idea of him being a prophet really, really came to the fore. And again, the introduction to that, you can check out last week's episode. So uh, let's, let's dive in. Um, so before we, before we go too far, uh, one of the things, kind of where we left off last week, was a little bit of this idea of, of the kingdom of God. And so, uh, before we go further with Jesus as prophet, we need to we need to kind of do some work here at defining what we mean when we talk about uh, the kingdom of God. And so, how do we how do we define this? Well. The zealots of Jesus's day argued that there is no king but God. This was kind of a rallying cry among the zealots that began 
back with the Maccabees, right? This, this idea that, that nobody could rule Israel but God. So no king but God. And as a result, uh, there kind of became this, this slogan, the kingdom of God, that Israel would become the kingdom of God. And, uh, and, and this has some, some of its roots, right? Back in the scriptures, uh, you can go back into some of our conversations um, about the, in Beyond Sunday School, a couple seasons ago, we looked at the, uh, the background of the, uh, the monarchy of Israel. And in there, uh, as, as, as the monarchy was getting started, in particular with David's kingdom, uh, you had the scripture writers talking about David being on the throne forever, or somebody from David's lineage being on the throne of Israel forever. And so uh, that idea is kind of rooted there, and it gets fleshed out a little bit more in, in the book of Daniel chapters 2 and 7 with an idea of a never-ending kingdom ruled by God. This was, this was kind of the future hope of, of Israel. Uh, that that they would be a kingdom forever ruled by God. That then developed as the people, first the north, you know, the north was uh, destroyed. It went into exile never to return in 712 uh, BC. And then you have the southern kingdom uh, going into exile in 586, 587 uh, BC. And so, this idea then uh, began to develop during the exile time that the way the kingdom of God would come, the way the kingdom of God would break into the world would be God delivering his people from secular oppressors, from the pagan oppressors. So in other words, having a new exodus, right? So the kingdom of God uh, was a slogan that basically meant Israel's God was the world's true Lord. So there, were, there was no other Lord other than God. And so the expectation by the time that Jesus you know, showed up, um, the expectation was that uh, God would show up in a new way, fulfilling the Torah, cleansing the land, and restoring the temple. So Torah land and temple. We're going to come back to those themes as we go on further. We're going to find that uh, land, that Torah, land, and temple uh, are very important issues uh, in Jesus's teaching and then in the teaching of, the, of Paul especially. Uh, we, we are going to see those themes come back. So kind of Kind of lodge those those three ideas: Torah, land, and temple, uh, in in your mind, uh, because we're coming back to those. Um, and then, and then God's rule would be through divinely appointed persons and means. In other words, God's rule would no longer be by pagans. God's rule would be by His kings, by the kings that were named and appointed and anointed by God himself. In other words, there would be a move back to the monarchy uh, that, that was promised in Moses and then found its fulfillment in Saul and David and, and so on and so forth. So 
so that's that. So when we start thinking about the kingdom of God, we have to understand that it's political and it's religious. It's a both and. And in the first century, there was no distinguishing between the two, right? Because kings, kings were anointed by gods. It didn't matter what society you were in. They were, they were anointed by gods or so in some societies, they were themselves gods, right? So, uh, so while we in America in 2021 have this idea of a separation of church and state, uh, back in the first century, there was no separation of church and state. There's no pulling apart religion and politics. They are, they are wedded and tied together. So when we're talking kingdom of God, when Jesus talks about kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, uh, y- you can't pull apart the social and the religious. You can't pull apart the political and the religious. They're all tied together. And so when he's subverting one, he's subverting other. When he's challenging one, he's challenging the other. All of these things are just mushed up together, um, and, and they're, not, they're not separated ideas. Um, does that make sense as, as, as far as this, this definition goes? I think so. Okay. Cool. All right. So the setting, the setting of Jesus in the kingdom of God. What, what do you think was the worst part about being under foreign rule for, uh, for the Jewish people? What, what, what's your gut tell you? What's your best guess? Well, their faith wasn't shared by the foreigners. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So definitely some religious issues, maybe some oppression going on as a result of that. What else? Well, they were much more powerful as a, an army or a government as the, the Jewish people. The Jewish yep. people had nothing in comparison. So they were uh, subservient all the time to what they wanted. And of course, there were a group of try to fight the Romans. And of course, we know what happened in 70 AD. Yep. Uh, yep. So it was very confusing for the uh Jewish people. Yeah, good, good. Any other thoughts about what might be some of the worst parts? Well, even culturally, I mean, the Jewish traditions and and the way they lived and all of their, well, it, like you said, it's hard to separate the culture from the yeah. religious, but yeah. all of that would have been so different and things yeah. being forced upon them that they didn't agree with. And Yep. Yeah, good. See, y'all, y'all are, you guys are getting this, right? Because some people's first thought might be high taxes, right? Because when you're, when you're being, you know, when you're under the control or thumb of, of a occupying force, right? They're going to, they're going to levy high taxes, which certainly was true because uh, the Romans took, took more than their fair share of, of, of money. Out of out of the places that that they controlled, some people might say the laws, right? Um, that the laws were the worst part uh, because you know they had different different rules, different laws, uh, especially the laws kind of commanding uh, you to be a part of you know the army or uh, you know worshiping 
worshiping Caesar, some of those kinds of things. Um, and then just the general brutality of the oppressors. I mean, most days you could go to any, any hill and any province that Rome controlled and you would see people on crucifixes, right? Because that was their, that was the way they brought Pax Romana. Uh, you take the, you take the insurrectionists and you hang them on crosses and you put them at a high place and people get the message real quick that you don't cross Rome. It's just the general brutality. Maybe that was the worst part, but I think y'all hit it, uh, which is the reality that pagans were ruling over the people of God. When you go back and you read the, the writings in the intertestamental period, right? That, that 400 year, what we call the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Um, what you find is the thing that was the hardest, the hardest part of being under foreign rule was the fact that non-followers of God were ruling over the people of God. That was the thing they couldn't, they couldn't wrap their minds around. It was like, if, if God is God and we are God's chosen people, then how, how can this, these pagans be, be ruling over us? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem to work. How does this, how does this work? Um, it was a significant, significant missed expectation, right? Their framework of who God was and how God was supposed to work is that God is the God is, is the true King. And therefore his people must be, must, must have, must rank somewhere higher than these pagans. So, so the idea that pagans were ruling over the people of God uh, really, really challenged them to the deepest core of their beliefs. And and that gets us to this question of exile, right? So, so we know that past story. And if we don't know that past story, we'll go back to some podcast episodes a little while, you know, a few, from a few months ago, as we looked at the history of, the, of Israel's monarchy and why they went into exile and what happened and all the things that led up to exile. Well, at the, you know, when, when exile finally came to the south, to, to Judah, to the house of Judah, um, it was a geographical and a theological exile, right? Because they were taken, they were taken from, from, from Jerusalem and they, they were dropped in another place. Uh, they could not practice temple worship. They could not, and, and so in a very real sense, they, they could not practice their faith in the way that they believed they needed to practice their faith. So they were geographically exiled. They were removed from the land. And then they had a theological exile where they could not worship God in the way they thought they needed to be able to worship God. Well, you know, a few hundred years later, when they come out of exile under the reign of Cyrus, when he sends Ezra, Nehemiah, and all those folks back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, rebuild the temple, the geographic exile ended. They were no longer geographically exiled, but they also were never independent again. There never was again an independent kingdom of Israel. And as a result, 
most of the people still felt that they were under a theological exile. God was not yet reigning on his throne. God's man was not yet reigning on his throne. The anointed one of Israel had not yet returned to the throne of Israel, bringing back a fullness to the people of God. In other words, the kingdom of God had not yet come. So so the people, they were waiting for the story to turn and then God would once again have his people in position to rule. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were looking towards. As they went back and read, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and these the, the, the prophets, right? They began to read them through this lens of, of hoping and waiting for the coming of God in the climax of their history where the pagans would be overthrown and God would once again return to his throne as the rightful ruler of Israel and the creation. So this, this is what they were waiting for. And to this day, to this day, the Jewish people are waiting for a return from exile. This is why the Western Wall in Jerusalem is the weeping wall, right? It's, it's as close as they can get to the temple. And so they, they, they weep, they pray, they wait, they hope for, ex, for, for exile to end, to come back, for God to once again be on the throne. So this is, so as Jesus start, as Jesus comes and says, you know, repent behold the kingdom of god is here i mean this this is all the stuff that that little phrase brings right mark 115 the time has come jesus said the kingdom of god has come near repent and believe the good news so jesus is saying a whole lot in that once in in those two sentences He's saying, look what's this client, the, the climax of our history is that the time is now. Here we are. The, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when he says repent and believe the good news, he's saying repent, change. You have to change to believe this good news, right? There, there has to be a change or something has to give for the for now the kingdom of God has come. The exile is, is over. So, so we need to walk through this message a little bit. Now, this, this message, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This message is, is, is hope for a few things. It's a hope for a new exodus, right? So what happened what happened in the first Exodus? Pharaoh was overthrown. God's people were saved and brought to the promised land. So there was an overthrow of a pagan oppressor and the people received the land. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, they hear, ah, it's time for a new Exodus. It's also time for a new temple. There, you know, now, now we, we're going to see the temple restored. We're going to see 
it would come back to its full glory where we can fully worship again. It's, it's a hope for a reconstitution of the 12 tribes. You see, when, when Jesus names 12 disciples, right, that wasn't done haphazardly. That wasn't just a, hey, 12 seems like a good number. No, it was poignant. It was purposeful. It was a reconstitution of the 12 tribes. Jesus is saying, hey, look what I'm doing. I am doing something here. And this is very much in the prophetic line of doing things, right? Where, where things were metaphors, where, where actions were taken to point to a deeper reality. Jesus is saying, hey, it's time for the new test. It's time for a new exodus. It's time for a new temple. It's time, the reconstitution of the 12 tribes. I'm getting the band back together. The people of God are coming together, right? It's a renewal of covenant. You know, when, what did they do? What did the people do when they came out of exile, right? When you go and you read Nehemiah, you read Ezra, what took place? There were covenant renewal services. Why? Because they had come out of exile, they were being reconciled to God, and there needed to be a renewal of covenant where they said, okay, you are our God, we are your people. This is, God would say, this is what I'm going to do, this is what you need to do, my people, and the people say, yes, we will do this. We are returning into covenant. And so so we see, we're going to see this renewal of covenant, right? And ultimately, where do we, where do we see that? We see the new covenant poured out in his blood at the Lord's Supper, at the Eucharist, right? This, this, is the, this is the new covenant. This is the renewal, the covenant renewal service that takes place. There is a hope for a national forgiveness of sin, right? We too often think about sin and all that kind of stuff in individual terms, Jesus wasn't talking about necessarily individual terms. Jesus, the people of Israel, the community, they were talking, they were thinking in terms of national forgiveness because how did the, what, what was the impact of, of the exile? The impact of the exile was national. The people, not everybody had fallen away. Not everybody had sinned, and yet the whole nation faced exile, geographic, theological. And, and in so doing, as the kingdom of God comes, so too now, this is a national forgiveness of sin. There is this bigger picture at work. There's a hope for a release from captivity, right? This, this hope that, that they would no longer be captive to uh, the pagan powers, the foreign powers. This, this, was, this was the hope. And there is a hope that it was a time of justice and peace. Because as we read, as you read through the prophets, and as they're talking about what it was going to be like at the end, when, when exile finally was going to end, as it was coming to an end, it was this this call to, to justice and peace and an experience of justice and peace. And so this was the hope. And this was not what they were experiencing under Roman rule. 
And then finally, an end to foreign rule, right? Um, it was the pagan Romans were going to be removed. They were no longer going to rule the people of God, but God and his anointed one, they were now going to rule. So, so when Jesus comes and says, believe the good news, this is the good news that he's talking about. And as he goes about his ministry, this is the good news that he then begins to display in his actions and life. So um, let's take a look here at, uh, at a passage uh, where, Jesus, where Jesus lays out some of this. When we see some of this uh, idea begin to kind of rubber meet the road kind of stuff. This is, uh, Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry. And, uh, and so he goes to Nazareth. This is Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he says, uh, you know, where he goes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what he's quoting there is Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In the signs of the signs of Isaiah's deliverance, uh, you know, they're on display in Jesus, right? As he goes about carrying out his ministry, what does he do? He, he does. He proclaims good news to the poor. He, you know, proclaims freedom for prisoners. You see him make blind men see. He sets the oppressed free. This is probably in reference to things like demon possession, that kind of thing. And there's a proclamation, uh, the year of the Lord's Savior. Now, when Isaiah is writing this, he is talking about the experience the people will have at the end of the Babylonian exile, right? This is what's going to happen when that exile comes to an end. Jesus now reading it, reading back into it, reading it back into his time is applying it to himself. So Jesus is saying the end of exile is here and it is time for the new exodus. So how do the people respond? All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. So it's, it's, it's fun, right? It's, it's funny. They hear proclaiming the Lord, year of the Lord's favor, all these good things. And they're like, wow, this Jesus cat, he really, he really has it going on. Their expect, he is meeting their expectations. The framework that they have for who God is and how God is supposed to work is it, it all makes sense to them, right? As Jesus is talking like this, but it doesn't stop there. He then says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Seems like a bit of an overreaction to a lousy sermon. I mean, I've given some bad sermons in my life. And uh, thus far, nobody has tried to throw me <laughs> off a cliff. So, near <laughs> there, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm call, I guess I'm going to call myself lucky. Two things in my life have never happened when I'm preaching. One, no one has ever fallen asleep on a second-story balcony, fallen down, and died like happened to Paul. And <laughs> nobody has tried to throw me off a cliff. So I'm doing okay, I guess. Um, but you know, why? Why did they respond this way? Well. Because what Jesus says here, when he, when he says, you know, when he makes this connection to Elijah and Elisha, when he makes this connection to the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, what he's, what he's saying is, hey, this kingdom of God that is breaking in, there is a good chance that a pagan widow and a Gentile cripple will have better seats at the table than you, Israel. He, he's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Abraham's descendants. John was already preaching this, remember, right? I mean, John, John said, hey, you know, God can make Abraham's sense on anything. This ain't, you know, to, to say that you're Abraham's descendants really doesn't mean anything to God. What matters is whether or not you repent. This is the issue. Are you going to change? And Jesus here is saying your response, your response to the inbreaking kingdom of kingdom of God, this is the thing that matters most, not the fact that you're that you're Israel. You see, Jesus Jesus was saying, listen, you Israel, we Israel because Jesus was part of Israel, right? We, Israel, are the agents of blessing for the whole creation. We're the agents of blessing. We're not the ones to be blessed. So it's, it's not about creation giving to Israel. It's not about Israel getting this, this pride of place. No, no, no. It is the fact that God has said, you're my people. Through you, I will bless the nations. And so here Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, the climax of Israel's history. And he's saying, yo, it's for everybody. He is expanding this thing right from the very beginning. He is, he is making this thing big and he's making it universal and he is making it global from the jump. He's saying the kingdom of God is coming through Israel to bless the nations. So uh, this, this was 
This was shocking as Jesus universalizes this message right from the beginning. Um, So how does he prove it out? Well, he proves it out by exorcisms, by healings. He proves it out by declaring individuals forgiven as archetypes, right? He's saying, look at, I have the authority to forgive sin. I can even do it. I can do it with individuals. Therefore, I can do it on this grander scale as well. Um, And so then, so, so this gets us to the role of Israel in God's kingdom. God would deal with the problems in creation through Israel, right? So, so we get this from throughout the scriptures, right? Israel would be a kingdom of priests. Israel would be the servant through which the world was saved. You know, we, we get those, those servant songs in Isaiah, right? I like Isaiah 53, for example. And oftentimes we as Christians read, read back through that and, and we think, you know, and we see, we see Christ reflected there. And I, and I think rightly so. But we also have to remember that when, that when Isaiah was writing that, he, he probably wasn't writing that necessarily about Messiah, but he was writing something to the people of his time. And in that servant, when you read it in the context of Isaiah 53 and in, in the, that broader section right there, those four servant songs, the servant there probably is Israel itself. And so now here comes Jesus who says, I am the representative for Israel. Israel is now embodied in me because it is through Israel that the world will be saved. So Jesus very much believed this would happen through a climactic moment in history where the creator God would save Israel from its enemies and bring renewal and healing to all creation. This this is what Jesus was bringing about in his body. This is the role of Israel and ultimately with Jesus as, as its representative. And so what we're getting at here, the kind of the theological ideas are election and eschatology, right? That these are the, these are the $5 words that you can impress, uh, you know, people at, at your next dinner party, right? Um, election points to God's ah. choice of Israel to be the means of saving the world. This is what the election of Israel meant, right? It was God's choice of Israel to be the means of saving the world. And then eschatology is, is the end, the eschaton. What is, what is happening at the end, the climax? And so it's, it's God's bringing of Israel's history to its moment of climax. This would bring about the reconciliation of not just Israel, but the whole creation. And that we find ultimately in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah, right? We, we find this ultimately in Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. It is, it is, it is through, that is, that is the fine point, but his life and his ministry leading up to it, all of that is what is building this climactic moment in history. All of that is, is showing that here now is the time the kingdom of God is breaking in. We are in the eschaton. So, so this helps us begin to make sense of gospel material. If we can think of, if we can hold this idea 
in, in our mind. We already touched on the 12 disciples, the idea that they're the reconstitution of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, you know, we, we have the parables, right? So, and, and basically the questions in the parables uh, are asking, you know, this, would Israel respond appropriately to the message and the messenger? If you read through the parables, this kind of is the overarching theme that brings all of them together. How will Israel respond? How will they respond to Messiah? How will they respond when he comes bringing this message of Israel as being the blessing and not just the blessed? And so Mark 4, 1 through 20 is the parable of the soils, right? So in the sowing, the, so, the parable of the sower, the, the, the sower. Um, as he's sowing his seeds. And this, this really kind of points back to this idea of God would sow his people in the land coming back from exile. And so, yeah, we, we talk, you know, there, there's the secondary meanings and different things going on there about, you know, how will the people hear the gospel and the hearts and all these things going on. But ultimately, it's this idea of, of God is sowing his people in the land coming back. He is He is scattering the seed broadly throughout the land. The people will be scattered all over, and God is at work sowing. Then you have Luke 15, 11 through 32, right, Um, which is the story of the prodigal son. And and it's my my favorite story. It's my favorite parable. I can't can't ever seem to escape it. It kind of like haunts me, chases me. Everywhere I go, I feel like it pops up. And, and yet, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned uh, preparing for this week is, is to think about the, the, the prodigal son, that story, as, as understanding that the return from exile was happening in and through Jesus's work. Like, like Jesus tells the story, he tells the story and, and it's, and he's like, and he's saying it's happening now. This is happening now. We're seeing this happen now. Well, how do we know that that's kind of the theme there? Well, because Luke 15, the whole that whole chapter, right, which has the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. What opens that chapter? It opens with the challenging of Jesus welcoming outcasts, of Jesus's having table fellowship with people who were unclean, people who didn't deserve to sit at the table with him, people who were outside, people who were not reconciled to community. And so these three parables, they're, they're, more, they're more about the reality that the exile, the return from exile is happening. It's happening in their midst. Do you, do, do you see it? So we're having a feast because the exile is over right? The, the finding of the lost coin is the exile. It's the exile. It's that coin coming out of exile and being returned into community. The finding of the lost sheep, is it coming out of exile and returning back to community? The lost son coming out of exile and returning to community. And the lost son gets more specific because where was he? He was in a pagan town eating with the pigs. But now he gets to come and he is in the party and he is with his father. The return from exile has happened. It is time for the party. And Jesus is asking the people, do you see it? Will you respond? 
Will you respond to this reality that the exile is over? That this universal message of the kingdom of God is here. It is breaking in. So Jesus's table fellowship with outsiders is, it is, it is, it might be, it might be one of the three or four most important things that is in the gospels. Like we cannot miss Jesus's table fellowship with outsiders. And honestly, you can think about the healings of, you know, physical healings. You can think of the mnemonic healings. Uh, they're, they're all the same thing. It's all people who were in exile, people who could not be a part of the community are now being brought into the community by Jesus. This is the work that's happening in the healings. It's not, the healing isn't the miracle. The miracle is the, the healing is simply the means by which the miracle takes place. The miracle is the one who's been exiled in a community who's now been brought into community, who's now been brought into the full fellowship with the people of God. That's the miracle. That's what's happening in the healings. You see, this, this whole this whole thing of outsiders becoming insiders, people who were not a people are now a people. This is the story. This is the thing that holds all of the, so much of the gospel material together. And Jesus in doing this is modeling a new way of being Israel. He's modeling a new way of being the people of God. He's showing them what does a covenantal life look like, a life built on promises, a life that's not built on law, but is built on promise, built on grace. This, this, this is where he's moving. It's not that the law was bad. It's just it was good for its time. Paul talks about it as being like a mentor. And it's done its job. And now it's time for grace rooted in covenant, forgiveness, and prayer. This is the way of Jubilee, right? This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is, this is what he's talking about. This is what Jesus is putting on display as those who are outside are brought in. And the thing is, is this new way of being Israel could be practiced right where people were. They did not need temple. They did not need the land. They did not need the Torah even. They simply needed to live this way, to be the people that are bringing the outsider in, to have table fellowship with those who are on the outside, those who are not a part of communal life, to bring them in to the fold. All of that can be done without temple, without land, and without Torah. This, this is a seismic, seismic shift in the way you would live out being the people of Israel, because now you are shifting from being the blessed to being the blessing. This is the shift that Jesus brings about. This is why people lost their ever-loving minds. This is what was so uncomfortable for so many people as Jesus shows up on the scene and flips all of this stuff upside down. So then you have, and so the Sermon on the Mount 
may be may be the center of all of this, right? Because it is here where we see Jesus lay out the alternative kingdom agenda. He's saying, this, this is the new way. This is how you do it. Let me lay it out for you. And it's summarized in the Beatitudes, right? They are the summary of kingdom work. The poor, the mourners, the meek, those hungering for justice, the merciful, the pure-hearted, the peacemakers, the persecuted. This, this is the summary of kingdom work. This is, this is what we are to be about. We are to be, we are to be people who are meek, who are hungering for justice, right? We are to be, we are to embrace the poor because they are blessed. We are to embrace those who mourn, right? I mean, this we are to seek out peace. We are to be makers of peace, not keepers of peace. We have to make peace. And we have to expect as we try to live this out, this new kingdom, this new kingdom work, as we live this out, <laughs> it is, it may bring some persecution, which is going to be hard. But this is this is the new agenda. This is how it all works. Wright and Bird, uh, we're, we're coming to the end here, wrapping this up. Wright and Bird say this, and I love this. So these sayings are about the type of people through whom Jesus intends to transform the world. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't launch missiles. Instead, he sends in the meek, the mourners, and the merciful. When God wants to put things to right, he doesn't scramble combat jets. He calls people to love and do justice. It is a new way of doing things. Later, they say, other sayings in the sermon point in much the same direction. Do not resist evil. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. These are not invitations to be doormats for Jesus. They constitute a warning not to get involved in the ever-present resistance movement. Jesus was urging his hearers to discover the true vocation of Israel, to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill that could not be hidden. This, this is what Jesus is calling them to, right? And in this ever-persistent, this ever-present resistance movement is, is kind of this sense of we always got to be fighting something. No, Jesus says, no, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Be present as the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill. In other words, don't seek out your blessing. Seek out being the one who blesses. This, this is the way. This is what the prophet is coming to say. This is how he's challenging them as he's saying, repent, Repent and believe the good news. And the good news is that you are now a blessing to the world. So uh, as, as, we are, as we walk through this, as we continue to walk through this together, we're going to continue to see this played out. Uh, but Jesus as prophet, he is calling the people to this new way of living. And it made them uncomfortable. It challenged them. It put them in a place uh, of incredible discomfort 
where God significantly was missing the expected framework that they had built. And, uh, and, and so, you know, at the end, uh, what happens? Well, they get them. And, uh, but God, but God in the end wins because the resurrection happened and the tomb is empty. And so, uh, so as we, as we work our way through, uh, try to hold some of these things in your mind. Now, next week, uh, we are going to look at Jesus and the temple uh, as, as he continues his work as, as prophet. Uh, this, this kind of has set the scene, right? The, set the message that he is, uh, that he is teaching and proclaiming. Uh, and the next week, uh, as we look at Jesus and the temple, uh, we're going to kind of see how he engages uh, with this kind of central structure of, of the people of God. So uh, I talked a lot, didn't really breathe much. So um, <laughs> <laughs> what uh, do you have? Do you have any questions floating around in your heads or uh, thoughts in light of, in light of everything that I just dumped on you? My head is exploding. Yeah. Very interesting. I never thought so much of Jesus modeling. Right. Um, Israel. I never have thought of that, but you brought that so to light, all these different things, you know. I uh lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. That was one of those things, Dorothy, that you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that at first I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But the more I thought about it and the more I read the gospels, the more I seemed to see it just <laughs> it's like everywhere. It's yeah. it's one it's it's kind of like the yellow car, right? You get a yellow car and then all of a sudden you see yellow cars everywhere. Yeah. Um that's it's kind of how I feel about Jesus as the model of Israel. It's 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 been really interesting. Yeah. It's just sad so few people seem to grasp it then, but sometimes it's hard for us even to grasp now. So yep. It's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really, really is. So I never really thought so much before. And, and you, you made it really clear tonight, Dan, how, how much of a change that all was for those Jews. Yeah. yeah. It was huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, I mean, a paradigm shifting thing i mean turned everything upside down everything upside down this yeah. is this is why paul you know sometimes sometimes you know we well some, sometimes we read the disciples you know in the gospels and think boy you boys were thick-headed but then when you start realizing how absolutely seismic this shift was yeah you can kind of give them a pass <laughs> right <laughs> you know peter doesn't look as dumb anymore to me peter looks more <laughs> like the guy that i'd hope i would be <laughs> If I'm hanging out with Jesus. Yeah. Oh. Anything else? I, I have one question that kind of goes back. Yeah. You were you were talking about, and I don't remember if it was in Isaiah when it was, you know, this the servant um in Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about who the servant was, and you mentioned that Israel. Yeah. Was the servant. Yep. So, you know, when you think about uh, prophecy, right, uh, we talk about how it has oftentimes, oftentimes we'll have 
two horizons. It'll have the immediate horizon and then a future horizon. And right. so uh, when we come, we're in really on, quite honestly, as we come, as we come to the old Testament text and you can see, uh, you see the new Testament writers do this all the time as they handle the new, te- the old Testament texts in the new Testament. Um, there's two questions we have to ask. We have to ask what did the original author writing to his original audience mean? What was he trying to write to them? What was he trying to communicate to them about? And then how, how now do we understand this in our time? Right. And, and it's the same thing we do. Like, it's really the same thing I do anytime I preach a sermon is what try to, I try to figure out, try to understand as best I can in their time, what were they saying? And then how does this make sense in our time? And so, you know, as, uh, as, as Jesus is quoting Isaiah, he is bringing him, applying that to himself in Isaiah six. And then, you know, we, as you know, the Christian church, uh, the early church looked at Isaiah 53 and applied all that to Jesus. But Isaiah probably did not have this specific person of Jesus in mind. Uh, and when you begin to read that in that broader context in those servant songs, thinking about that uh, being written to and about uh, the people who are coming out of exile and coming back to the land, it makes a lot of sense for it to be applied to those who were in exile. Um, because one of the things is, you know, the North was gone, the South, uh, while, you know, they were exiled. But we also have to remember that not everybody was exiled, right? They, they didn't take, it's not that they gathered every single last person from Judea and moved them. They took a significant number of people from Jerusalem and moved them out. And so those people who were moved out of exile, moved out on exile, they really were the ones that were taking, they were the ones that were taking the punishment. So you can, so you can see then how, you know, to Isaiah's original audience, that it would make sense that they would go, oh, the, this servant, those people who went to exile, they were our, they served on our behalf. They, they served for us, right? And, and then you can see how the parallel gets made very quickly then, because what does Jesus do on the cross? He serves for us. You see, this is how those things all begin to tie together. But, but if we're going to treat the Bible right, if we're going to really try to handle it well, we have to do both steps. We have to try to understand what was Isaiah meaning when he wrote to his audience? How would this have given them hope in their immediate moment, in their immediate time? Um, just like what we do with, you know, if we handle revelation rightly, um, you know, you have folks out there trying to say, you know, they try to bring everything into modern times. I was like, yeah, be careful with that, right? Because much of, you know, the vast majority of things that we see written in Revelation were written about that time, right then, right now. Um, and, and so, we, and so we, need, we need to be aware of what's happening in Isaiah and some of these other uh, prophets, because it's really not about future telling as much as it is about God telling. It's, 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 it's the prophets showed up to challenge the people of God and to call them back to, to, to faith. And and it, much more so than than trying to tell the future. 
Um, that's kind of a, the idea of prophets being future tellers um, really is a, is a relatively new, uh, relatively new idea um, in the kind of the way that, that that word is used. So does that make sense? Um, I, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I can. Yeah, completely. I, I never I'll, looked at I'll, it. I'll that think way. about it. <laughs> yeah. Either. Yeah. Stuff, stuff to chew on, stuff to chew on. We can, yeah. we can talk more uh, some other time. Maybe we'll do a, a series on the prophets and, and kind of talk through some of those things. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Give me more fodder to work with. This is good. So, <laughs> all right. Well, hey, gang, thanks for being with me this week. Thanks for being with us, those listening. Uh, later on. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. As always, we invite you to join us uh, seven o'clock Wednesday nights in the Zoom room for the live recording of Beyond Sunday School, uh, putting Jesus in his place. And, uh, and until next time, love well, my friends.